Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Gregor Wakonik, who is a researcher and translator with an interest in anti-fascism in Japan. Thanks for joining us, Gregor. Yeah, hello. Thanks for inviting me. I guess just to begin with, uh, what sort of uh, piqued your interest initially in the Japanese anti-fascist movement? Well, that's quite easy to answer. I was a student of Japanese studies, basically, and on the University of Vienna. And uh, besides being a normal student, I was also myself active and still am in different anti-fascist yeah, groups, whatever. And so when I first came to Japan, you say six years ago or something, then I basically stumbled upon, I know, like stickers with an anti-fascist logo. And then this, this sparked my interest. Oh, well, there's anti-fascist groups here too. And I think that was the beginning. There's a, I guess there's a bit of a blind spot in the West for uh, what's going on with anti-fascism in Japan, which has seen this sort of big resurgence in the, the past decade or so. But you've written a bit about how it sort of has historical roots that go back, you know, a hundred years. Could you tell us about sort of the the historical origins of the radical left in Japan? I won't I won't like sum up everything because it's quite convoluted, but I think just to make it clear, like leftists thought as such came relatively late to Japan. How that because we have to know that Japan was like an basically an isolated country until eighteen fifty three. So after the opening of the country, it was isolated for over 200 years. So basically nobody could get in or could get out. And like, I think a bit like North Korea today, but like with a different political system, basically. And of course, then like Marxist ideas and also anarchist ideas started slowly to pour in into Japan. So we have the first like anarchist thinkers, even like in the end of the 90s century in Japan. At the beginning, it was like the the left was, of course, but um, I mean, at least people like an organized left who would call um, itself that way was not present. There was just a, a lot of thinkers, kind of. But like around the, uh, in the 90s century, at the beginning, or like at the change of the centuries, first like more organized groups appear. And like, let's jump into like in the 1920s or something. So at at the beginning of the 1920s, we already have the first attempts of you of, of unionizing we have groups leftist groups who call themselves this way like anarchism plays a big base uh, a kind of like important role in the ide- ideological development of the left 
So, and it's quite huge, at, at least like it's by the state is considered like a threat. So we have the first instances of like um, repression, even there, like people are being executed. Parts of the activities are quite radical. We have like, um, like talking like bomb, uh, bombings and stuff from leftists against the state. And the other really important thing is here what the ideological backbone, I would say. Is of that time of the left. It's like a, a ideological baseline, kind of which is present um, or very important in parts of the Japanese left or radical left until today. Is the position to the monarchy, to the um, so-called Tennose in Japan. So, if we look at the, the thing today, like a lot of people consider, like the Japanese emperor Tenno, like just to be some kind of symbolical figure, which by law um, he kind of is, but. Uh, even like in more back then, in the let's say 1920s, he was a basically he was a monarch no? uh, with a great which had a lot of influence or power in his hands. And um, also, we have to know that Japan back then was a colonial empire modeled after European colonial states, and so of course, and an imperialist power. So of course, like the the main question or one of the big questions of the radical left back then was how to topple this monarchist system, how to topple on uh, the opposition, of course, against uh, Japanese imperialism or militarism. So like these questions were also deemed that back then from 20s on, we could say by parts of the left as anti-fascists, they called it themselves. It was like also the time where like fascism in Italy started to become a thing. So this would be like the, the very beginnings, I would say, of the Japanese left. Gregor, could you tell us a bit about the Kanto Massacre and the, the effect that had on Japanese society? Yeah, the Kanto Massacre was, to put it very shortly, it was the first, or I don't know, the first, but it was the biggest pogrom which ever happened on Japanese soil. It was a pogrom where around 6,000 Korean migrant or slave workers brought over from Korea to Japan were killed. And it happened in the aftermath of a event which shapes Japanese history until today. It's, it was a, a, like the Kanto earthquake. Um, it's a, it was basically a big earthquake, like what an event which happens in Japan regularly, which, uh, as far as we know, uh, is, uh, like, like we know. Né? So in this aftermath of the earthquake, which basically was the cause of like bur Tokyo burning down completely, because back then the city was made of mostly of wood. So a big firestorm appeared, which raged basically for days. And in this chaos, the Japanese government started to spread false rumors about like hordes of Koreans plundering Tokyo or like they all, also we have this interesting uh, thing that they accused Koreans of poisoning wells, which is a, as we know, like a known motive of anti-Semitic motive. Like we know this, like Jews, po Jews poisoning wells. So there is a parallel to this. Anyway, like uh, the pogrom, which was carried out by um, the police, um, by parts of the military, uh, by right-wing extremist vigilant forces, like groups kind of, and also by the civilian population, raged on for days. And how did this pogrom look? Um, it was like a, there is like, for example, this interesting story that checkpoints were being uh, put up in the, on the streets of Tokyo. And people had like, let's say, count to 10 or um, like recite a poem. And if they had a visible accent, let's say a Korean accent or a non-Japanese accent, they were either arrested or killed on the spot. I mean, also like uh, Japan, like Chinese people um, or even Ch Japanese people fell victim to these checkpoints. Let's say if someone was from Okinawa, where they don't even speak Japanese, but another related language, or, or let's say from Hokkaido, where the dialect is very different from what is being spoken in Tokyo. 
um, those people also sometimes were killed at these checkpoints. So in the end, um, this pogrom wasn't like one of the reasons also for this pogrom for the start of it was a clearly anti-leftist uh, leftist one. So it was in this case it was like anti-communistly um, motivated. So how we can how do we know that uh, at one time like back then we had um, significant parts of the uh, Korean labor population which numbered around a few hundred thousand people at that uh, time were organized in unions were politically active on the left side and they of course were targeted by the Japanese state and on the other hand also at the pogrom the state like tried to sweep parts of the left, like there were hundreds of arrests of leftist activists. They also were executions. We have like one of the, the massacre in the Kamedo prison where I think 23, I think it was like basically uh, uh, like some union members were killed and um, also like um, kind of prominent figures of the Jap Japanese left, let's say like Osuri Sakai or Itonoe, two very, very important anarchist thinkers, basically until this day were also liqu liquidated at that time. And so this event was basically opened kind of like the floodgates of uh, Japan marching towards like full-fledged fascism. And... Also, it was like um, one of these big, big repress repression waves, which the Japanese left have to endure, especially in the twenties. You know, like in the um, in the aftermath of the of the earthquake, there were then some like a law was made, um, which basically enabled the state, the state, like gave gave the state a free hand to like it was kind of like an anti leftist law, né? Uh, which gave the the state, like I said, a free hand to basically uh, imprison whoever they wanted, and it happened like in um, a lot. What uh, role does the this massacre play in like the, the history of the far right and the, the history that they tell of themselves in Japan? Like, is this something that's denied or is it something that's celebrated? No, it was basically it was uh, the the massacre. It was uh, it's not celebrated at all. Of course, I mean it's. Um, even back then, the Japanese state, uh, like during the time of the massacre, the Japanese state like tried then to suppress the fact that they were the ones spreading the rules and like tried to also suppress the the, the killings because uh, they saw oh maybe we like to put it very bluntly they realized maybe they they went a bit too far and like also people from the from other country like other countries started to like like um, hear news of it and like of course they didn't paint a good picture of, of japan so what happened with the program afterwards is that it was basically completely kind of like forgotten it was also not really legal to speak about it uh, especially during the times of japanese fascism we have to wait until like the 60s or 70s when first publications start to come out about this uh, massacre publications which were basically like um, in japanese for a japanese public and like I, I would say, like until seventy-two, seventy-three, the Japanese state just didn't like really recognize this pogrom, this massacre. So it was like like it never happened, kind of. Né? And like what what did it mean for the development, of course, of Japan of the Japanese state back then was that it was like a strong sign. Like if you that like as a Korean or non-Japanese, you're basically a fifth-class citizen. And uh, even as a, as a Japanese leftist, yeah, you are like in threatened by basically being killed. In terms of situating fascism within Japan, what do you think, if anything, makes it distinctive from other traditions? It's a good question, um, which I've said, like, I've not so far in my studies, like to, to give um, about Japanese fascist ideology, it's such a good um, overview. But from what I can tell is that 
it has this uh, Japanese fascist ideology has it at one uh, point, like it has this, this strong religious moment, which let's say in Italian fascism wasn't there at all. It was basically, or even you know, nation, national socialism, which were in its ideological core, they were like anti-religious movements. And Japanese fascism relied a lot on Shinto organizations. Shinto is the um, basically one of the two main religions in Japan. It is considered like the Japanese religion of Japan. The other would be Buddhism, which is more like considered as like Chinese or something from outside. Né? And so you had this strong support from Shinto groups, of course, also because like Shinto was made as a as a religion, it was, it was like shaped into a Japan wide, like, how would I say, like a supporting ideological around also structural pillar, pillar of the government of, of, of right wing ideology. Né? Like this, like clerical moment, like, well, I would say, like, is a big distinction. Then, of course, of course, also that like Japanese fascism as such didn't emerge as like a, something like a revolutionary mass movement. Uh, which we had like in, in, in Germany or in Italy. I'm not, I'm saying here that revolutionary, like it, not in a, in a sense of like of a leftist or like, um, communist or anarchist revolution, but in just in the sense that it was like very radical to like this idea of overthrowing the old system uh, for something much worse, of course. But so you, we didn't have like this like big leader or something who is, who is leading the people into fascism, but there is so much like ideological overlap. Of course, there is the idea of like of one person who is like leading the nation, which in this case would be the Tenno, the Japanese emperor. And we have the idea of like this racist idea. In this case, would be like that the Japanese, or in a broader sense, Asian people um, should be the ones leading leading the world and are basically above the other so-called races. What was then like, of course, starts like anti-com, anti-communism. These are parts which are, of course, overlapping with fascism here. Now. But what combines it, of course, it's like this uh, racist idea, now, like which manifested, of course, itself not only in stuff like the Kanto massacre, now, which was like we could say like a, so it's a proto-fascist event, but also in the Japanese imperialism at such, because like imperialism in itself also carry, always carries like r- racist ideas. Gregor, I, I want to ask about the resurgence of anti-fascism in Japan, but I guess we we probably have to breeze past about 70 years of history to, to get there. Could you maybe just briefly explain why Japan needed to have a resurgence of anti-fascism? What, what happened to the to the left in Japan, you know, post-World War II up until, you know, 2011 or so? I would just briefly include what happened in the Second World War, because, like, when we talk about fascism, a lot of talk is also there about, like, what happened with anti-fascism, like, anti-fascism, how it was active in the during the times of fascism, which is like a very brief history, unfortunately. So we had some groups operating in the in- underground, was more, mostly it was like, just like publicating stuff. Um, one example would be like the Akahata, the red flag. It's the, the, the newspaper of the Communist Party in Japan, which was basically printed throughout the fascist times illegally. But like after the Second World War, we have this resurgence of leftist ideas of, um, like the communist party was made legal again and um, even could organize a big number of uh, workers quite uh, fast like it's until today a party which is has some significance in Japan at the, at the elections they get between five or ten percent and what's very important like then is that also the ideological backline post-war uh, like the ideological backbone or baseline post-war 
of uh, leftist thought was the opposition against uh, the Tenno, against the Japanese monarchy, né? which because he was like the most visible symbol, of course, of Japanese imperialism, of Japanese fascism. And so um, this ideological backbone kind of we see throughout uh, the decades of post-war. It became, like, of course, very important in the 60s when uh, the Japanese uh, left radical student movement emerges, which is um, and the, the anti-fascism, let's say, of the student movement, which was highly influential, of course, for Japan, for like it left a big, big mark on Japanese history. But we have on one hand, we had like this quasi anti-fascism, which manifests itself in the um, in the ideology of like completely rejecting um, Japan as state as such. And especially a Japan led by a fascist symbol like the Tenno. On the other hand, which is um, important here to say, is also that even back then um, we have first cooperation between the far right in, uh, and the uh, radical left in Japan. It's something even which in Japan is not talk talked a lot about because we have this long tradition of cooperation between the left and and right and different uh, on like uh, sometimes there were uh, there was ideological overlap. Sometimes like just uh, a one point movement was made like to, to reach some goal. But still, the movement can be considered uh, revolutionary and also um, anti-national in its core. Let's then jump maybe to more modern times where the left is such a radical left has basically completely failed or is like only visible in like in some f on the fringes of of society so and what happens in 2011 is the uh, the catastrophe of Fukushima and um, this led to like a resurgence of not a leftist movement in Japan it can be considered completely a leftist movement, but it was a resurgence of uh, civil society in Japan. Up until 2011, like a lot of time Japanese was um, like by Japanese thinkers, it was called um, demo no naikuni, which means like a, a country without demonstrations. And so after 2011, we have this big anti-nuclear demonstrations where hundreds, thousands or even millions of people uh, like nationwide take part. And from this movement, which consisted mainly not of leftist or right-wing activists, but mainly of people who, be, who never before were engaged in any kind of politic, uh, politics. So and from this movement, a new anti-fascist, uh, like new anti-fascist groups emerge, which has basically um, almost no connection to the old school left, né? which we like to what basically uh, remained from the big um, leftist movements of the 60s and 70s. Né? So we have a, like to, to sum it up short, we have like an anti-fascist movement which basically was emerging from this post-Fukushima movement and was ideo ideologically very, mm, how would I say, interesting or vague. Is a contemporary anti-fascist in Japan primarily young people? Is this reflective of a wider generational shift in Japanese politics? We have like we have to see what uh, what kind of antifascists do we talk about? Like we still have like the old school left in Japan, which is uh, ideolo ideologically um, far more on the um, far more radical, of course. Like we have these demonstrations against, let's say, the Yasukuni Shrine, which is a fascist, um, which is the biggest basically fascist pilgrimage site, I would say, in Japan. And also we have demonstrations against the monarchy which are in their ideological core, um, definitely anti-fascist, those demonstrations. But in those demonstrations, like really 80% of the people would be 15 over. So this aged 15 over. So this is basically the, the, the generation of the, let's say, the student movement, like which 
we could say died out almost completely in the 90s or 80s where where there were these big sweepings of uh, like basically the state closed down dozens of autonomous student houses let's say or student dorms which were a hotbed for the left and the new uh, generation um they, yes this is like the post fukushima generation uh, i've been at demonstrations like uh, it was like what was it some anti-fascist rave and there were like hundreds or even like a thousand of really young people there in Tokyo, but they had no connections to the to the old left, I would say, you know, very little. And if this is a sign for reemergence for something, no, I would definitely not uh, not say this is um, in the if we say see it in a in a we have to see it in a like in a broader picture. Uh, excuse my English, by the way, it's not my native language. So, like the vast majority of people who of young people who vote in Japan. Like the voter turnout is very low. It's uh, it's about thirty percent or forty percent among people uh, under thirty five. So those people who do vote, they vote overwhelmingly for the right. I'm talking here sixty percent. Although they are young people at within these groups, I wouldn't say this is a, a this shows a turn a politically term in Japan, maybe on a very small scale, but um, we don't see it in numbers or even in a change of government of, or policy or anything, only on the street. This post-Fukushima anti-fascist resurgence, was that driven by a resurgence of sort of far-right activism post-Fukushima? Uh, definitely. What we have since the 90s, basically, in Japan is a, a new type of far-right it's called Netto-Uyo in Japan, which means the net, the, the internet right wing. And it's basically very, very like um, similar to what we know in the West um, or what has become known in the West as the alt-right. You know, um, we're talking here right wing people from from like image boards in the West. We know something like 4chan, which is nothing else than a spin-off. Uh, a spin-off it's just like a copy of, of Nichanero, which is a... Uh, like fortune in Japanese, I would say, now, but it exists far longer. And those people, this new internet right, didn't organize themselves in these old school fascist groups, which you have hundreds of even today in Japan, like which have like their fantasy uniforms or parading the streets and stuff and um, look like a bit, they're still stuck in time in the 40s. But this new right wing, they were like all kinds of people, you know, like even like from typical internet nerds, to even teachers and whatever, but they had, they organized on the internet because it, the internet is anonymous and you can like say whatever you want. And which also showed the deep rooted, rooted racism in Japan because it, it, uh, when the people have like a lot of people, if they have the possibility to speak freely, they will speak racist. And the internet gave them, them this possibility. And what was interesting here, like the main point which distinguishes this new right is, of course, their, I would say, like in your face kind of racism. The old fascist groups or the, the old right in Japan, in Japan, they had, they are in the, their core, they are totally racist. They're like colonialist until, until today, imperialist until today. But the, the racism as such, you know, isn't like their main ideological pillar. And, uh, with this net right, um, those were, they were those guys who basically shouted even on the streets, like to, like kill Koreans and other racist slogans. Because this uh, post Fukushima, like civil society, um, we have to say like that ideology, ideologically, they were not as versed, I would say, as classical leftists are. So needed kind of a, a, a really visible fascist groups, like racist group, no? which like the racism, like I said, of the, of the old right isn't like 
visible at the first glance. So, if, of course, like it was a reaction then also to this, to this, to this new far right, to this net right, which was so visibly racist, like you couldn't basically just, how would I say, you couldn't ignore them anymore because they were marching even like to, there was this family from the, the Calderon family from the Philippines and which was about to get deported. And it was kind of big, like it was a, it became a topic in Japan and those um, racist groups started to, let's say, they made a demonstration in front of the house of this family, of course, like traumatizing the children then who were living with this family. So this was like, yeah, I would say the starting point of this um, post-Fukushima Antifa to um, stop those very, very visible and um, also like openly racist groups which organized themselves on the internet. Could you speak a little bit about uh, the Ainu people and the civil rights movement around Indigenous people in Japan and how that sort of fits into all of this? That's a topic I'm not really well versed about it. I know people like, I'll, I'll try to say whatever, like, I know it's like basically there, there are an ethnic minority in Japan, which was like until the uh, 90s, basically, they were not, not even recognized by the Japanese state. So um, they were, um, although they were Japanese citizens, of course, they couldn't, they had no like right to use their language, you know, like let's say in school. Um, other than like some private schools, which is like the cost of fortune, of course. And so their language died out. If today we do have some people who consider themselves Ainu, like in Hokkaido, in the very north of Japan. Um, so it's, it's basically a history of like a suppressed ethnicity, a minority throughout the, throughout hundreds of years, basically now, even of Japanese colonialism when, when Hokkaido was colonialized, um, long ago by the Japanese state. And so today, Ainu people are, um, or not even today, like let's say from the 70s on, Ainu people are, uh, they have linked on um, um, to, or like, um, how is it, joint forces with other minority groups in Japan, which would be like the Burakumin, which is like a, the lowest case um, of, in, in Japan, it, it were people who were like, um, seen as something like the untouchables. And of course, it, um, they joined also force, uh, forces with the Korean minority in Japan. And in the 70s, we also have like um, this, this minority fights in Japan. They're very important um, because like the Burakumin or the, like Koreans in Japan and even Ainu, they like, kind of got their first rights. They, it was a civil movement, of course. Like it was about like not so much about revolution. Then it was more about simple human rights, né? like to speak their language, to not be discriminated and stuff. And so, of course, also these movements we can de or we must definitely like include into the into something like a anti-fascist uh, right and anti-fascist history of Japan. Gregor, uh, a few months ago in July, the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated. And obviously his death has triggered a good deal of discussion in Japan. But what effect has it had on anti-Korean or in what sense has it helped to encourage anti-Korean racism in the face of the, uh, I guess, involvement of, alleged involvement of uh, the Moonies in this um, this plot or this um, in this event? Hmm. Um, I mean, there was like the, 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 the Unification Church, um, like, I do think that the term Moonies is a bit like, we are talking here about a right-wing um, Christian sect, not about some kids' play, which you can say the Moonies. It's like typical Western, like, um, I would say it, it's a bit Orientalist um, saying it to the Moonies because just, um, it's, it's like this cute washing of Asia, maybe. Anyway, uh, the Unification Church as such is a, 
is a Korean religion, of course. And there was some um, in the media, um, especially the right wing media or in, on, on on internet. Uh, there was some talk about yeah, like um, kind of like yeah, of course it's the Koreans. They like now that they're 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 killing like our beloved ex former prime minister. And also there were some demonstrations from smaller um, right wing groups who basically said what I said right, right now, like uh, this anti-Korean uh, sentiment. But I don't know that if it like led to a big resurgence of like anti-Korean hate in Japan, like anti-Korean hate in Japan is so, I would say, is so prevalent uh, in big parts of the Japanese history, uh, society, that you don't need, uh, I, I don't think it, it really changed so much. It was, uh, that it really like, I would say, sparked the new fire of anti-Korean hate, no. In 2018, at a Republican Club event, the founder of the Proud Boys, Gavin McInnes, um, celebrated the 1960 assassination of the socialist MP Asanuma by a local fascist. How are such actions viewed by contemporary fascists in Japan? Um, are they too proud of his murder? And what's the general, I guess, relationship of the movement to uh, the use of violence uh, for political ends? Yeah, of course. I mean, like, um, this is until today seen as a uh, heroic act by a lot of far-right groups in Japan. I mean, of course, they're proud of it. No? Like a, a socialist politician was murdered. And of course, it is implying violence. I mean, like, for example, shouting, like, kill the communists or like even like kill the Koreans by whichever like part of the far-right we are talking about right now is is, is super common in Japan. Also, what happened, like, um, if you go to, like, uh, a, a, a anti, like, a leftist anti-national demonstration, let's say, against the emperor, you have surely right-wing fascist groups will encircle this demonstration at some point. I've seen this myself, and they're, they're trying to, uh, to, like, attack demonstrators there. This would be one thing, like, this anti-communist or like anti-leftist motivated fascist violence. On the other hand, what we do have is, let's say, we have this long history in Japanese, in the Japanese post-war society of anti, especially anti-Korean acts of uh, violent, uh, of violence. We have like killings from the, uh, in the seventies, we have several uh, violent acts even, or even killings of um, Korean students um, from Korean minority schools by right-wing um, activists. Also, like, I think last year there was this Someone set fire on a um, like a, on an area where Koreans were living, like which was um, race uh, race uh, motivated by racism. So we have this kind of violence, but it's not like what I would say, like this this street level violence, which we know in the West, in the West, you know, where fascists would go around and like uh, target, like blindly target whoever they see, like deem let's say non-white or whatever. No, it's a bit, it's it's not so visible, but it's still there. Gregor, could you tell us a bit about the group, the Counter-Racist Action Collective? Well, the Counter-Racist Action Collective is basically today the biggest um, gr uh, group or maybe also network of uh, anti-fascist groups in Japan. And it emerged after 2013. Um, it emerged for a group which was called the Shibakitai, which is like uh, the group to bash fascists. And so at the beginning, um, this group was just like a bunch of like this post-Fukushima uh, anti-nuclear people. Um, mostly men in their 30s and 40s who came together and also physically tried to stop like this mar fascist uh, racist marches. Yeah, um, then it involved in this bigger like network and they're by far I would say the most visible anti-fascist group. But it's a group I definitely would not call leftist. 
and or um, why? Because they um, in Japanese post Fukushima Antifa in its most parts doesn't even want to be leftist. Um, this and this comes to like I would say, or they don't want to, to define maybe themselves as leftists. And this is because of this like red scare kind of thing, which is prevalent in Japan until today. Uh, because in the sixties and seventies we have these violent uprisings from or militant uprisings for the student from the student left. Also, like the student left, this violence became a problem inside the left. So people were starting to killing each other and traumatized basically also the whole movement. So these new post Fukushima groups like Crack on the forefront they try to like not be lumped together with those like maybe like two hardcore two militant groups you know also there is a anti-communist ideological moment if you like um um if you if you see it some if you read into some publications of this group which leads unfortunately to a very big problem that um parts uh like large parts are significant parts of this uh post fukushima antifa movement like crack they are cooperating, uh, let's say, with Isuikai, which is a basically a fascist uh, organization in the tradition of uh, Mishima Yukio, né, of this fascist writer, which especially in the West is seen um, is being de-ideologized and, and just seen as a normal author of something, which isn't. He was a, a fascist terrorist in the say, 60s and 70s, uh, 60s. And um, yeah, I mean, they are cooperating with them because of course like for the fascists it's for like groups like Isekai it's easy to say yeah well this um we are also against this new racist right kind of and so they can uh, kind of like wash themselves they can like um in cooperation with with anti-fascist group they can like present themselves as not being racist and uh, the good guys which of course is not true and the, the thing would be why would like post fukushima antifa groups um cooperate with the right um to put it very shortly is um, because there is no ideological backbone, no um, like anti-fascism is simply seen as basically um, or was for a long time uh, in this movement seen as something like basically just yeah being only against discrimination and the whole idea that fascism as such is connected also to capitalism is connected to different parts uh, to other um, I would say parts of um, discrimination stuff. This hasn't been there at the beginning of this movement. Slowly it does, like I would say, those thoughts are getting inside this past post. Fukushima Antifa and especially Crack also. But it's, it's mm, let's say, uh, it's a very, um, how do I say, put it in English, it's a very controversial group, a very, very controversial group, I would say. But nevertheless, it's influential. And they have a good name. <laughs> they do, yeah. So a lesson there, uh, think about your acronym when you're coming up with a name, but another lesson, maybe have an ideological underpinning <laughs> to your uh, politics if you're going to engage in anti-fascism. I think that's exactly what happened here. That's like, I mean, I was talking to, to people um, from those post-Antifa-Fukushima uh, groups and I was like talking to them, how come that you're like cooperating with these um, fascist groups like uh, Isuikai and which for work, for people who don't know, they're like basically in, right now they are one of the like most visible supporters maybe on the right of, of, of Putin's war. Um, they are uh, usually cooperating with um, all kinds of fascist, neo-Nazistic, uh, far-right-wing groups from the whole world. So they're not an ally at all, I would say. Né? And mm, so and the, I, I do think that's the problem. Like people just, when I talk to people, people just didn't know this né? because there were a lot of people in this post-Fukushima movement who never were interested in politics. And then, of course, someone can come to you and present um, itself as the good guy. Né? If you never, if you never heard of these people, of course you uh, 
tend to believe them. Gregor, just on that subject, what's the relationship between fascist and far-right groups in Japan and groups elsewhere in the world? So oh. you referred to uh, this group having a particular position on the, the war in Ukraine and so on. Um, are there developed relationships between groups in Japan and, and those outside of it? There are, although not as many, of course, due to the language barrier and the geographical situation of Japan, not as much as I would say like in the West. But uh, like two examples would be um, Isuikai, the aforementioned group uh, from before, uh, which present themselves as kind of the liberal right, but they aren't. Um, they um, basically, through decades, they have... Um, always like taken part or even organized um, meetings of far right parties um, worldwide. Like um, I think the one time they organ they organized this meeting, I think it was ten or 10, 15 years ago. I'm not quite sure. They invited like proponents of far right parties from Europe. Let's say um, there was Andreas Mölzer was there from the FPÖ in Austria. Jean Marie Le Pen from France uh, was was there in France. Um, Shirinovsky from uh, from Russia and all those like big figures, they invited them to Japan. Then they were staunch supporters of the Milosevic regime um, and also met, went to Serbia and met with, no, how is this guy's name? Uh, Vojislav Šešel, fascist kind of leader figure in Serbia. And so, and so we have this kind of like more on this party level and like non-fascist uh, style uh, connections. And then we have like, let's say, Zaitok Kai leader, Makoto Sakurai, or the Zaitok Kai is basically the biggest group from like from this net new net uh, internet right, né? and like he was a guest of some I don't know the name now anymore of the, but there was a neo-Nazi conference in uh, the US a few years ago, uh, which was like really from this neo-Nazistic spectrum, you know, like um, Ku Klux Klan style and 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 alt right uh, style of groups uh, who were there there, and he then held. Uh, anti-Semitic speech, which um, basically he, he basically said, we have to get rid of all the Jews in the world. I'm just quoting him, him now. Né? So he was also part there in um, America, was touring America there, had a few speeches, if I'm not mistaken. So there is some cooperation, definitely, yeah. Gregor, I guess a lot of the activity from the radical left that we've seen here in the past few years has been related to the Olympics and opposition to the Olympics. Could you tell us a little bit about that and where the momentum for that has gone now that you know the Games are over? Yes, um, the anti-Olympic movement was definitely like one of the most visible radical left movements in Japan, at least in the first years of uh, their beginning uh, of, of the movement, which reaches back like um, more than 10 years ago when basically Japan was even still like in this like how it's like um, election kind of process like it wasn't clear if if um, the Olympics would even come to Japan and it emerged basically from like an anarchist uh, from from anarchists or from the homeless movement which is very very parts of it are uh, anarchist inspired uh, at least to say and it emerged from this um, homeless squatting movement it was a big part of the of the um, of the anti-Olympic protest, because um, of course the Olympics came with like a sweeping of um, parts of Tokyo of the homeless. They sent them away, and people were fighting for it and stuff. So, and also it was like definitely anti-national. No? It was against the emperor. It was also you could go on demonstrations there, and you had like a a, a, a Japanese flag which was like then crossed through. You know, like it was definitely anti-Japanese and anti-national. And 
It then became bigger when, uh, the, especially it gained momentum more, uh, to, to make it short, before it was a kind of fringe movement, you know, it was seen as, as a radical. And of course, the state made sure that the Olympics were presented as something good. And so the movement was really, really small. Um, but in the end, those demonstrations gained bigger, even like uh, I think a few thousand people, um, because the, uh, it was the, Olymp the Olympics were, they took place in the midst of the pandemic. And of course, this was a, an argument against um, the Olympics. And in the end, also like leftist parties or left liberal parties jumped the train and uh, jumped on the train and like were presenting themselves as being anti-Olympic. But at the core, the, the movement was um, an anti-nationalist one, definitely, yeah. In terms of this um, uh, net right, I wonder what influence doctrines like QAnon and a figure like Trump, how do they affect the, these expressions, these political expressions? Do they have, have they registered? Are they, have they been adopted by the right in Japan or have they been ignored? They've been, of course, um, adopted by the right in Japan. I mean, parts of the Japanese right, for, but from all parts of the right, be it like the, the, the net right or be it like the more old school, the old, the old right. A lot of them saw, uh, like, saw Trump as, yeah, like, uh, let's say it's, it's a good figure basically, né? and where you have had like, demonstrations in Japan where they were waving Trump flags and like, let's say that, um, say that also the, the election was rigged and stuff. And uh, you had, a, he had like kind of big supporter based and also like QAnon as such. Um, of course it also came over to Japan. I mean, there was also an own branch made like JAnon it was called, which was ideologically a bit different and had different kinds of, um, conspiracies, theorists, uh, uh, uh theories which backed their ideas. But in the end, of course, it was still like this in its core anti-Semitic world conspiracy theory kind of crazy thing. And also, which is interesting, the founder of QAnon, like the guy who basically started the whole thing, he lives in Japan. So, yeah, I mean, like these conspiracy theorists, uh, theories, even pre-QAnon, this all, I mean, this stuff is long there in Japan from the 90s on, this net right. QAnon as such wasn't something new in Japan. We, we had conspiracy theories, uh, theories like that. I mean, they were endless in Japan. And, uh, so that was the, the reason why like Q, Q, QAnon in Japan, yeah, it has some influ influence, but it wasn't as, as big, let's, let's say in America or other parts of the world, because you still had an array of other conspiracy theories you could resort to and which would be maybe like more easier to understand from a Japanese perspective. Well, Gregor, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to find you on Twitter, you're at Gregor underscore Wakanik and your blog is at zatsudan.at. So Z-A-T-S-U-D-A-N.at. It's in German, unfortunately. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Gregor. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll catch you next week. See you then.
に埋める犠牲また罪とガラクタ溢れる地面の片隅に佇み抜ける視点開き続ける貧富の差は広がるヘイトにウイルスもなこんな世界で生き抜くなら奴らに渡すなキングのザワ支払いは現金で吐き出させる ATM 測りきれない天秤で見せろてめえの精神性グラスボーイだそう傾いた列島の根っこグラスボーイつかむぞ奴らから満点をネットグラスボーイだそう傾いた列島の根っこグラスボーイつかむぞ奴らから満点をアフリシアーサポーター。